Hi, welcome to Tube to Table, the podcast about helping tube-fed kids become happy and healthy eaters. Every week, we will dive into the basics of tube weaning to help unravel the conflicting information families get from doctors, therapists, friends, and family. I'm Jenny, a feeding therapist, mom, and food lover. And I'm Heidi. I'm also a feeding therapist, and I love sharing meals with friends and family and helping kids learn to eat. Come with us as we share practical tips and provide real-world expert advice so that parents can help their little ones start their journey from feeding tube to family table. Hello, and welcome to the Tube to Table podcast. In this week's episode, Dr. Dilemmas, we're going to be talking about problems that families face in communicating with their physicians and getting help on their journey to tube weaning. Today, Heidi and I are so lucky to be joined by our friend, Dr. Katja Roel. Hi, Katja. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you. Excited to be here. We're so excited to have you. I'm wondering if you would just help our audience understand a little bit more about you by telling us about the work that you do. Sure. So I was in family medicine and primary care and working with kids and adults and everything in between. And I, at the time, had often parents come in and ask me about feeding challenges and didn't really know what I was doing. But unfortunately, I didn't realize that till I had my own child. And so I found this work in terms of feeding through challenges and difficulties with feeding my own daughter. And, you know, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say that it took that, you know, in terms of learning more and as that that impetus. But as I learned more in terms of feeding my own daughter and saw these incredible transformations within just a couple of weeks of instituting responsive feeding and that division of responsibility, it blew my mind what a difference it made for my daughter and for my family. And I knew for her health later in life. And so I was so profoundly sort of shaken by the power of this feeding relationship that I decided to learn more. And really, to me, helping children grow up with a good relationship to food in their bodies, the best that it can be, really feeds well into my medical background. I saw so many people struggling with food issues and their relationship with food that impacted health and just well-being and their happiness in lots of ways. It is such a avenue into how connected we are with our families and how we get well and stay well. It's no surprise that you found your way to such impactful work. And your journey as a doctor from kind of giving advice and then how that kind of merged together with your parenting journey is really helpful for, I think our audience, it's helpful for Heidi and I to think about. We also try to keep that in mind when we're talking to physicians that are working with our children who are tube fed. And what we find is kind of what you just highlighted, which is that most physicians get into the field to make an impact and to help children. (laughs) But you don't get a ton of training, it sounds like, about kind of responsive feeding and feeding across the lifespan and then necessarily how that impacts kids and families. Was that true for you? A hundred percent. And I'm relatively young. I'm in my mid forties, well, late forties now, but you know, and I went to a top 10 medical school and I went to a really well-respected primary care program and I cared. And, you know, I was, I like to think for the most part, I was good at my job. I certainly was compassionate, but I didn't know what I didn't know. And I think that unfortunately that is still the case. And I know that At the beginning of my practice, I would have certainly said things like, no child will starve themselves, which now I'm, you know, I'm horrified that I would have said that. Mm -hmm. And there are other arenas in terms of eating and weight that I didn't do well. 
for example, I used to push weight loss and try to get people to lose weight. And looking back now, I realized that I, unfortunately, I, I probably wasn't helping people in some of these arenas where we just don't have the training. And I think it's really sad. And it does real harm to parents who turn to these doctors. One in three visits to pediatrician or family doctor will be about feeding and growth concerns. And I literally had zero training in this. I didn't hear about the division of responsibility or even the idea of feeding dynamics until I had my own child and my own struggles. And I found it because I was sitting next to a woman who happened to be a pediatric dietitian in an airport. And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. And she said, you know, here's this great book by Ellen Satter and sort of opened the door to this training, which I, you know, took further. But yeah, it's a huge problem. You know, I had a half hour lecture on breastfeeding and that was it. So a lot of doctors mean really well and they'll say things like, well, at my house, we just do a no thank you bite and it works great for us. And Mm -hmm. so I think that we're all human and we take our personal experience or I was raised where I had to clean my plate and I turned out fine. You know, we Mm -hmm. sort of extrapolate. And I also think that our panic about childhood obesity, which I use in air quotes, because that's a, that's a whole other topic is that word is really difficult, but our panic around weight and this hyper focus on growth charts, I think has led a lot of doctors astray. You know, it's like now it's the only thing that they're looking at is that point on the growth chart. And, you know, I kind of feel like 20, 30 years ago, people are like, we never, you know, we didn't graph this. You just looked at the kid, you know, you took a history and you went, oh, he's, you know, smaller than he's always in the front row and in, you know, the choir pictures. But we looked at the kids, there wasn't this like, the second you walk in the door, we graph growth, we print it out. And boy, they're either failing because they're 90th percentile or they're 10th percentile. And there's this sense that like growth charts are, it's a report card. And I think doctors struggle with that too. Yeah. I mean, in my experience with my own kids, pediatricians, but also in dealing with the kids, pediatricians that we work with, there's starting to be a little bit of movement in terms of knowing you know, that some of this language about restriction and focusing primarily on weight and numbers isn't ideal. But I also feel like there's not a lot of information about what is ideal, like, you know, about what would help foster. And like, so in my experience, Absolutely. my little guy was diagnosed as failure to thrive when he was very young. And the message I got was he has to gain more weight. Now, thank goodness I was already like waist deep in this work, although it didn't make it easy. But I was able to like, you know, navigate that with some great resources. But For me, what that felt like in those dark moments of stress and worry that we all face as parents is I'm a failure, (laughs) that my kid is not okay, that they're unsafe and unhealthy. And then when you're left with nothing to do, unfortunately, what happens is if if a physician or a medical, a well-meaning medical team member isn't making recommendations for you to try strategies that are known to be non-responsive or in some cases dangerous, parents are left with no strategies. And so they try everything. And everything includes strategies that are not helpful, like pressuring, forcing, restricting, negotiating, rewarding, all of that stuff that we could probably all talk about all day. But one of the things I've seen coming from a lot of doctor's offices, too, is even though they're starting to shift away from weight being as the main focus, sometimes that's easy to do when they're in the middle ground. Mm. But the minute they shift off to someplace else and they're like, oh, no, there must be something wrong because I was trying to focus on the middle ground and I have no resources. So the minute they're small or the minute they're big, you know, the minute they're hovering on those two sides, then they realize that they think that they don't have any strategies either. So they default back to the only thing which they know, which is over controlling, being Mm -hmm. very medicalized. So that lack of information, 
they feel it too. Cause like you've both said, they're providers who like people and who want to help kids and they get stuck in the same lack of information loop on what to do, I think. Yeah. And I think the providers are scared too, you know, and I think you hit it on the head. And this is the problem with these labels that we come up with, like normal. Humans grow on a bell curve distribution, right? So some of you might be having, you know, twitching from having your statistics or biology (laughs) memories, but, you know, bell curve means that humans come in a wide variety of sizes. And that includes there are healthy children growing at the first percentile or even under the chart. And there are healthy kids growing at, you know, off the chart at the hundredth percentile. But unfortunately, anything other than kind of the middle 50% is labeled with really scary terms. Jenny, you said, you know, that term failure to thrive, right? Mm -hmm. So this term overweight, over what weight, right? So overweight or underweight and goodness, the worst is failure to thrive. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember talking to a dad's group and this dad just broke down and he was crying and he said, you know, my kid is failure to thrive and we just feel horrible. And meanwhile, the kids are playing next door. It was this great program in Minnesota. So the kids are playing next door with the child development experts. And this was free to everyone in the state, by the way. And I love this program. But anyway, so the dad's like, it's failure to thrive. And then after the class, this kid runs in, leaps into dad's arms and is like, I had the best day. And You should see, I mean, like this super verbal, brilliant kid who's leaping, you know, just has this beautiful physicality. It's not this sort of listless kid sitting in the corner for 12 hours a day with bags under their eyes and disengaged from life. And so I think this is where the terms, or similarly, that's why I don't like the O word, obese. There are kids who are running around and they're wrestling and swimming. and, And then you're like, well, this is not sort of what we have in mind when we hear these words. So I think these labels are super damaging. And I think that the doctors don't, you're absolutely right, most of them don't know what to do. If they're in the middle ground, they're like, great, you let them decide how much to eat. But even though like the physician, like groups, professional groups will say, well, we believe in the division of responsibility, unless they're like too big or too small, and then it's like they throw it away. But those kids can be trusted almost universally to learn to eat the right amount to grow in a healthy way for them. Yeah, that's really super helpful to keep in mind. And it hits on this point that we end up talking to physicians about frequently after our evaluation process when we're planning a wean for a child that has a feeding tube, which is what should we be looking at? I even resist the word measure. Like what should we be looking at to help us know that a child is healthy? Like how can we assess health if we've determined through this conversation and all the great knowledge that we've shared that you've shared through your programs and writing catch up, but how else can we look at a child and assess that they're healthy or not healthy without just focusing on we? And I'm just wondering for you as a physician, what do you look for? Like, what do you encourage people to kind of take a peek at? Yeah, the eating disorder world has, I hear people using the phrase state, not weight or state and weight. So you're looking at the child, like this child in this dad's group. So we're looking at overall, their energy level? Is it about the same as it has been or their happiness? How are they functioning? Are they going to school or whatever they're used to doing? Are they able to continue doing that? Are they Mm -hmm. able to focus? Are they able to sleep? We're looking for changes in who they are. And if you suddenly notice that the kiddo who used to enjoy dancing or doing whatever is now just sitting in the corner and doesn't have energy, Certainly, I would review signs of, if we're really concerned about intake, look for signs of dehydration and we could review those. So you can look at at measures if you want to, but usually things are pretty, you know, 
if they need that level of supervision where you're looking at how often they're urinating or their intake, there are other indicators as well that things aren't going great. I think that so often also the job is to reassure. It's terrifying what parents are going through. And so reassuring by here's what to look for, that things are going okay, and here's where you might be getting into some trouble. And maybe a day or two of that, you can say, you know, we can tolerate a little bit less energy while we're transitioning. So that's the discussions to have with the medical team and the dietitian and you guys who are running the wean. And I think, which you guys do a great job of, it's about listening to parents. It's about listening to their concerns and then reassuring them where it's appropriate. And if there is something to worry about, then to be really clear and specific with information. Because I always say, Doctors, you know, you can't reassure parents and and ideally we shouldn't be freaking them out either, (laughs) unnecessarily, (laughs) which I see all the time. But until we listen to what parents' concerns are and do a history and a physical and if needed, generally most of the time you don't need it, but if needed, lab tests, you know, where appropriate. But really, I think that when parents can feel listened to and heard and not just like, oh, he's fine or he's underweight, just make him eat more. You know, there's two extremes. So I think open communication, sharing resources, you know what, doctors don't have a lot of time usually. So if they can share podcasts like yours, here's this podcast episode I really like, here's this book I really like, you know, so that they may not be able to do all the education and handholding, but that's where, you know, where the team comes in, but they have to listen. Yeah, we think listening is key. And we're going to talk in a minute about building consensus and how do you get a team to start working together and listening to one another when they're not. Before that, one of the things that we help parents and physicians think about when they're thinking about health is just developmental progress. If your child is making consistent gains, and we're not even saying necessarily age-appropriate milestone, because that's that whole another vortex that you can get sucked into where you're like, oh, he's a month behind on this. But kids do stuff at lots of different rates, and especially kids with feeding tubes who have been through a lot have good reason for having development that is at their own rate. And they have a right to develop in the way that they're developing as long as that progress is coming and as long as it's steady. That's a really good indicator that they're doing well from a health standpoint. The other thing that we like to talk to physicians about is the importance of self-regulation, what the literature suggests about how that's important. Because a lot of times physicians that we work with are really focused on weight because they have a paper in their hand or a growth chart in their hand and they want to help and it feels like an anchor, right? Like they're like, I have this thing that I can hang on to and tie my treatment plan to. And when you're working on something that's challenging, that can be really reassuring. So what we like to do is we like to have physicians kind of say, okay, weight's important. We don't want to say that weight's never important, Mm -hmm. but it's important in the context of health. So we're going to look at weight, we're going to look at development, all the things that you indicated like sleep and attention and state and all of that stuff. How can we use weight as a piece of that puzzle? Not, it's not the key to the, you know, that's not what's going to keep the kid healthy. And then the really compelling research that we find is the, what we know, and Heidi, I believe you're about to do a presentation in a couple of months on this, and I know you've done several in the past, but on the importance of learning to self-regulate your intake as a small child. And when kids have feeding tubes, that process obviously for good reason in most cases has been interrupted, but the importance of working towards that. And um, Heidi, I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about self-regulation and what we know it does to protect kids' health in the long term or why it's so important when they're little. Well, we do know that self-regulation 
it has to be self-regulated. You know, first of all, we know that that is the body being in charge of itself. And one of the earliest ways that we do that is by controlling our intake so that we have taken enough to grow, but controlling sleeping and some of the other really basic bodily functions. And we know that kids, that infants and early toddlers are actually really good at self-regulating their intake. And the older we get, the less good at it, the less natural it is if we haven't had a chance to build that great foundation. So it's important to the best of our ability to build in the time and the space to allow kids to build that foundation so that they have something to build on later. And the attention and all of the other important pieces of self-regulation build on those early pieces of being in charge of your own body. I think that's such an important point, this self-regulation. And unfortunately, I'm hearing more and more that parents are being told that their child can't do it. Yes. And that's really distressing to me, particularly where they're like, oh, this child has sensory processing challenges and interoception is a sensory, you know, arena or area. And so there's this leap made that, you know, children who are autistic or who have sensory challenges can't self-regulate. And that is just, you know, I think we can say that maybe their cues are harder to attend to or that they may have trouble learning, especially if they've never been allowed to self-regulate. It may be hard to listen to those cues and, and that it takes a little while to learn. That's that transition that you guys are so good at supporting. But I think it's so important that even you guys deal with children who've never eaten by mouth and you're able to get them to successfully transition. It's very, very rare, I think, for children not to be able to self-regulate. And I think what it means is that the adults around them, the feeders, have to be incredibly supported with facilitating feeding in a way that supports self-regulation. And most doctors, I don't think, know that or believe it. And most of us adults don't know it or believe it. How many adults in America are on Weight Watchers or they're using apps to tell them when to eat or, you know, diet plans? You know, I went to a training for feeding where the trainer said, we have to teach children portion control. We don't, you know, so it's like, boy, even some of the folks doing feeding therapy don't believe that kids are capable of self-regulating. I think that's so important that they're born with these capabilities. Challenges are thrown in the way. Diet culture gets in the way. All of these cultural things, finish your plate, all this stuff that most of us adults struggle with it. So it's natural to think, well, why would I trust my two-year-old with reflux or why would I trust them to do it if I can't do it? I love breaking that down because like the thing that's getting in the way of not being able to let them explore or find their ability to self-regulate because as we agree with you, it's still there. It doesn't get taken away by the two or by most significant medical diagnoses. The answer isn't to then say, okay, let's throw out everything we know about learning to eat in a healthful way. And I'm talking about healthy, not in terms of nutrients, but in terms of this responsive way that we learn to eat together. It's about uncovering the problem and treating it. And if the problem is that they haven't had a chance to feel it, well, then we have to help them feel hunger and relate to it. But at the same time, we have to also help them trust food, feel safe with the people that are feeding them when maybe food used to be vomited frequently or they aspirated in the past and there's a tremendous amount of anxiety or fear there. And so the solution isn't to throw out all the knowledge that we have and try something new, the solution is to treat the problem. And the problem often is that children don't know how to self-regulate because there's a tube and a schedule that's keeping them from doing that, often for very good reason that they've outgrown if they're medically in a stable place. 
And I think there's another misperception that my, I've already tried to get my kid hungry and it can't self-regulate. Mm-hmm. That's another thing right. we hear. We've got him really hungry. He would let himself starve. And that's because only the one piece of self-regulation was addressed and the other pieces that allow that to come out, which is trust, responsiveness, and understanding right. have to be paired with the physical in order for it to be successful. So just good to keep in mind the big picture. Absolutely, And I think it's important if their families will see you said, well, I tried this for two days and it didn't work. Yes, (laughs) You know, I hear that all the time. And it's like, I read a blog article. Now I'm not talking about necessarily weaning from feeding tubes. I don't support families doing that in my practice. But, you know, kids who are ARFID or very low weight, And they'll say, well, I read a blog post and I tried it for two days and he ate nothing. And so I think this is such an important point that there's so many pieces to this puzzle. And as parents, having some confidence, having support, education before sort of leaping off of like, well, they said my kid can self-regulate, so I'm just going to put out, (laughs) you know, the food I want them to eat. And then it turns into no child will starve themselves, which is absolutely not what we're saying. Can I just backpedal one second in terms of the growth chart issue? So growth and interception and the ability to grow, I think it's important. One thing that blew my mind, so when I had done training with physicians, I would say things like steady growth is healthy growth for the most part, even if it's low and steady or high and steady. And then I was blown away. I read this study, May, MEI is the author, and they looked at thousands and thousands of healthy children. And what they found was that in the first six months, two out of three of them made significant shifts on their growth charts, both up and down. We're talking like not 2% on the growth charts. We're talking like went from 75th to 25th or 50th to 10th percentile or Mm -hmm. 10th to 75th. So most babies are crossing percentile lines on the growth charts. Even up to age two, a third of them are crossing percentile lines with weight. And I think you guys are right that doctors are learning to say, well, low or you know, stable growth is fine, but we do see kids cross percentiles who are perfectly healthy. And that's where we have to look at the whole child. So if you have a child, an infant who's four months and is eating well, and like you said, they're starting to cross midline, whatever they're doing, you guys know all of the developmental stuff better than I do, or maybe they're starting to roll over or whatever. They're meeting developmental milestones. They're sleeping, all these things. They're doing beautifully, but they've gone from birth at 50th percentile to 10th percentile. That's likely okay growth. And let's just follow up as long as everything's looking good. But so often the bell gets rung, the flags get thrown up for these infants when it's healthy, just shifts in growth. And then you've got a panicked parent of a three or four or five month old who's now, you know, told do whatever you have to because now they've fallen off their growth curve, which sounds really, really scary. Dramatic, yeah. Yes. And so I see these referrals of kids with mild challenges or misperceived challenges who go from typical eating and get kicked into these really severe by age two, three, four. And you look back and you're like, everything was great until someone said they fell off their growth curve. And then we were referred to feeding therapy where we had to do this, you know, or whatever it was. So I I think it's so important for the physicians. Again, this is back on the primary care doctors. I think it's malpractice to label these kids without looking at the whole history because you kick families into this anxiety and fear. And usually, like you said, Jenny, without support and without education, often then reaching for that that feeding out of fear and desperation that is counterproductive. And I've been there and yeah. it stinks. 
you know is not working. It doesn't feel right, but you don't know what else to do. That's the story I would say for most of the kids that come through our door, that some of them had a precipitating medical event for sure. And they've had a feeding tube since birth, but there's a number of kids in our program that the spiral started. They thought things were okay. And then, you know, Katya, we use your worry cycle diagram so much. It's so helpful. And all the parents say, that's my story. I can think of a number of families who say they came home from the NICU. They were doing pretty well. Things were going well. And then they saw somebody who was concerned when their other providers hadn't been concerned and suddenly there's a new concern and they start that cycle and then they end up completely back to using their feeding tube for everything because they, instead of being stabilized, they were spun around that worry. Which kind of leads us naturally into this next phase, which is like, okay, what do we do with this? We know that our doctors don't have the information that they would love to have. I mean, in most cases, the physicians are just trying to help and they don't know what else to do. In most cases, they should be doing better and we're trying to help that along by sharing great information. And there are changes happening kind of in the in the space that pediatricians and primary care providers practice in. But what do we do to help families with this difficulty of building a team and building some consensus and feeling supported by their physicians? We have some ideas that we have found to be really helpful with families. And one of them is, which the worry cycle really makes me think a lot about, is that there's often what I call like an avalanche of strategies that come. There's this perceived problem or often a real problem. I mean, some of the problems that people are treating are very clearly there, and sometimes they're not. (laughs) And sometimes it's this perception or, you know, a misinterpretation of a growth chart, whatever the case may be. But then something's tried. I'll just give up an example. A formula might be fortified. And then that didn't get the change made that they wanted. And so they try something else. All the while, this child is having kind of constant change. They're being exposed to, you know, I liken it to like the floor beneath their feet is moving and they're already feeling nervous or unsure or not understanding food and feeding. So frequent change is something that can be really alarming to a kid who's in kind of a uh, alert state around food anyways. And so we encourage families to start a conversation with their physicians. And one of the things that they can advocate for is slow and steady change too. So if we're going to try this, can we give my kid a little bit of a chance to see if it went okay? And if it didn't, are we going to keep it there? So for instance, a medicine to stop vomiting. If the medication didn't work, do they stay on the medication? And that's not a decision that we make as therapists. That's a decision that a doctor needs to. But that's a great question for a physician. Should we stay on here before we make the next plan? Because I think often there's too many moving pieces. And if that feels stressful for families, it sure as heck feels stressful for the little one that's being fed or having all of these strategies thrown at them. And so slow and steady, asking questions along the way about every single recommendation that's being made, asking the question, is there evidence? And if there's evidence, taking a look at it yourself as a parent and seeing, is that evidence valuable? Is it something that's on a large group of children? Is it something that pertains to my kid's diagnosis or their experience? And then just in general, like when you're getting kind of general resistance to tube weaning or to any treatment that you may be engaging in to help your child overcome a feeding challenge, starting a conversation with your physician about overall health can be hard because there's stress involved. You show up at a doctor's appointment. I don't know about you guys, but my kids never really love that. That's never fun for any of us. And then you're there and the pressure's on and there's a new weight check and there's all this information being thrown at you. And so going into the meetings with notes, bringing somebody with you 
that can help hold the kid or help support you when things get tricky. Most physicians in our experience, in most families when they call us, are shocked to hear us say this, but most physicians are willing to have the conversation you want to have. They're willing to even start thinking about things in a different way or review information that you may have gotten about healthy and responsive feeding strategies that may be different than the clinic that they've referred you to that does the two-way mirror kind of reward-based therapies. Presenting them with some information on that most physicians are more than open to it. So that's the first thing I recommend, like going into those appointments armed with some information, just saying, hey, can we talk about this? And just treating it like a conversation is my biggest piece of advice. I think those are all great points. And absolutely, if the child is crying and you can't focus, is there someone who can take them into the waiting room while you discuss plans? And I think as a physician, we also feel a lot of pressure to do something mm-hmm. and to be helpful, especially if we're not trained and it's like, oh, well, gosh, I'm going to look on my app and oh, here's the differential. So I'm going to order these tests to rule all this stuff out. The other thing is testing is super stressful. It can be invasive. So I think sometimes when doctors really want to help and they feel stymied and they're not sure what's going on, there might be this push to like, well, let's do this test and let's do this test. And I think it's okay to say, well, can you help me understand why you're ordering this test? Could we wait three months while we try this intervention? Or, you know, we've just made this change. Can we wait three months and then order that test if we're not seeing things improve? Because I do think that there's a lot of, you know, gosh, we had to repeat that test because my kid was screaming and they had to strap them down and we got this x-ray or we got this swallow test or this stool test, you know. And so I think maybe the phrase, can you help me understand why we're doing this? And I, I love your thing to say, you know, what is this recommendation based on? What would we do differently based on the results of this test, especially if it's something invasive? And I think that's part of helping them know what you're worried about. And I also just had a client recently where the pediatrician was not worried about weight, but it was really hard for the parent to hear that. So they continued to sort of panic and coerce and do all the stuff that they're like, we know we shouldn't be doing this, but we're at 10 out of 10. And meanwhile, the pediatrician is like, weight looks fine. And you know, I reviewed the weight and it wasn't at all worrisome. To me, the doctor needs to be asking, what are you worried about, right? Number one, when I do my training, that's on the doctor is to say, what are you worried about? But if your doctor's not asking, maybe as the parent, you can go in and say, here's what I'm worried about. Is this reasonable? Why not? You're telling me growth is fine, but I'm still worried. And so let them explain to you and then try to listen if you can. And I think also, if you're really stuck in anxiety, like you had three months in the NICU, and you didn't know if your child was going to survive or not, that anxiety can be triggered so easily getting back to that panic point. Oh my God, we have to do something or my child will die. Even if you rationally don't believe that emotionally that's going on. And so I think that that's come up with clients too, where they're not able to hear what's reassuring. And so, you know, that's where having someone with the team like you guys. So the more people who are doing the reassuring, whether it's, you know, the dietitian, the speech therapist, the OT, the books you're reading. And then if you're not able to hear that, and maybe your partner or your parent or whoever's helping you is saying, maybe it's also time to look at anxiety and getting support around that. So there are lots of different issues. But I definitely think if you're feeling like you're not being listened to, can we schedule a longer visit where we can talk about my concerns about his growth? Or I'm still worried about his growth. What would we do differently? What are some other resources that you can share with me? 
Those are awesome questions. I think it just so often parents, because of the emergent nature of the medical condition or whatever led to the tube, they had to kind of relinquish control in the early days in order for the medical teams to take care of their child in many, many cases that we see. And that transition back into your rightful place as parents and like what we always say, like parents drive, you know, parents are the drivers of any change in the feeding relationship and they should be. And that's tricky, like any big transition in life, right? Like getting back in the driver's seat is hard, but you don't have to do it all at once either. You can start asking the questions, start having the dialogue, and that can be really helpful. And I think having that plan mapped out, you know, can we map out our plan here? So you're saying today we're going to try this medication for six to eight weeks. And what do we do if he's not any better or if he's worse? What's the next step? Because I think sometimes knowing then we might try this. So I think that's important to kind of have an idea so that parents aren't left sort of going, well, what do we do if it doesn't work and what's next? And I think that helps the doctor step back away from that pressure to be doing something, be doing more, to be offering, you know, tests or something new every time. And so having that plan sort of in advance, we're going to see how this goes. Here's our red flags just in case something goes south. I don't think it'll happen, but call, you know, the hotline, call the nurse line, whatever it is. But here's our plan. And I think it's okay to ask for that, to say, you know, what's our six-month plan or what's the plan after this trial of this medication or changing the tube feeds? So I think having a plan, because it's about anxiety and it's about feeling supported and feeling reassured in your plan for everybody. For everyone. And I think the biggest thing we see when parents are facing these dilemmas with their doctors with two bed kids is that the doctors are resistant because they've never heard of responsive feeding or if they've never known about hunger. What they know is kind of these more traditional behaviorally oriented programs. Mm -hmm. And so it's not that they don't, they're trying to protect your child. Like I think it just helps to go into the conversation knowing that if they don't know anything about it, then, you know, rightfully, they're putting on the brakes because it's unknown and their motivation normally for that is protecting your child. So that if your goal is having a conversation about how can we protect my child together with all the information, I think it's just a slight shift in your objective when you go in that creates teamwork versus divisiveness. And if you can go in and saying, here's all the stuff that I have questions about, here's all these things that I've learned, where does this all fit in? Like, I understand your concerns about weaning, but here's the information that I have. What do you think? Because we need our doctors to keep us safe and healthy. Heidi and I have seen, even in our practice, a real shift in the dialogues we're having with physicians becoming much more, I don't know, collaborative. Well, that's the other thing I was going to say is they see success. So the other thing is I always tell clients, you know, I have so many, like I was just saying, you know, two or three phone calls and then they disappear. And I'm like, oh gosh, I hope they're okay. So I'll check in by email two or three months later. They're like, yeah, we didn't need you anymore. We felt like we were on a good path. We were seeing progress. We're good. You know, and then I always say, would you please tell your doctor, please talk to your pediatrician, please give them this book because they don't know. And then I, you know, I've heard back from pediatricians who are like, I couldn't believe, you know, in two months, like we've been dealing with this problem for four years. And in two months, it was like done, right? Mm -hmm. For the most part, weight was stabilized, whatever. And so that's the other piece of this. And this is what's so challenging when often the only programs that are at the local hospital or where people are doing outreach are these big hospital-based programs that I generally don't refer to. They're not the model that I use. But if that's all the doctors are seeing when they go to their grand rounds or whatever. So they're also being told that there's no evidence for what we're doing, which is really a problem. And that's why, you know, Heidi's coming and we're doing a big conference in May. 
to try to really build some groundwork. And we need we need to do research and evidence so that the doctors can feel feel good about it if they don't have the experience. And while there may not be evidence on the specific responsive feeding programs, because quite honestly, that name and this coalition of people that are starting to practice and change things in the space that we work in, what there is, is decades of evidence about what does create lifelong healthy patterns with food. And so your doctors care about that body of evidence. They might think there's nothing. They just don't know about it. And so we'll do some linking in our show notes to some helpful resources to help spark conversations with physicians. I always advocate for parents to talk to their physicians about their concerns and certainly go with that to them with evidence, but also align yourself with a professional if that feels like too big of a mountain. Align yourselves with a professional who does practice from a responsive standpoint, who can also advocate so that you can parent and advocate as a parent, but that your therapist can have those professional dialogues with your doctor. So many families that we work with, the parents are playing so many roles and it's so many balls to juggle and it's really, really hard. That's the ideal. And, you know, one resource I send parents to is that mealtime hostage Mm -hmm. because they have almost 13,000 parents. And so I think it's worth just going, hey, does anyone have a pediatrician locally? That may be an option. And again, I'm not always talking about tube weaning because that may have more limited options. But yeah, if you can find a practitioner who is on this. And I also think when you have successes, sharing it with the doctor and saying, you know, I know he hasn't gained weight this week, but my gosh, he stops crying around food. And now he's at the table and he's happy and he's started eating more of his safe foods or preferred foods. So I think that also when families are seeing progress, that's not about weight gain and boy, he's happier. He's not crying or we're not fighting to get him to the table anymore. We're seeing all this. You guys, I'm sure can link to the podcast you've done about that, about your pyramid is just so beautiful with the progress that comes. And so I think that it's our job too to point that out to the medical team to say, we're seeing a lot of this early progress and, you know, we're feeling good about the process. And I think if parents can communicate that as well, that helps to reassure the pediatricians too. I'm sorry for them, but they don't get that kind of warm and fuzzy, obvious progress that you see in the early days of any treatment that's responsive, which is the decreased stress and the decrease in our case, sometimes vomiting and gagging and the increased togetherness and enjoyment of a family. But that doesn't mean they don't want to know about it. So sharing it is a great advice. Yeah. And doctors will be impressed if you have a kid who's been gagging for two years or vomiting every meal because they've had to eat a non-preferred food. If you can go back and say the vomiting has stopped, that's something they can hang their hat on. Yeah. You know, so that's helpful. It is. So just to recap our advice in terms of how to work together with your doctor in a more, you know, kind of fruitful way is it as you're thinking about weaning your child fully from the tube starting the dialogue, going in with a conversation and being prepared for those conversations, shifting your focus away from kind of us versus them and towards we're in this together. Let's have this dialogue and have a conversation and be prepared. The second phase is if that feels too hard or you're not up for that or it's not working, get help. Have a friend come or ask a therapist or another professional that is more like-minded towards the path that you're looking on to get your child off the tube, be involved with you. And thirdly, if you've done those things and you aren't feeling heard, it's probably time to make a change. Parents' intuition and parents' feedback is essential to maintaining the health of a child. And if your medical team isn't listening to you, then that's really important. Then you deserve to be heard and your child deserves to have their parents be heard so that you can do your job of protecting them in the best way. 
Just one last thing when I posted something similar about this, I think it's important that not everyone feels, like you said, feels safe or has the opportunity to choose a different doctor. So if you're dealing with a child in foster care or you're yourself in a marginalized, you know, population or it doesn't feel safe to do so, just, you know, do the best you can within what you can access. And some folks, you know, may not have the option of finding another doctor. And so I know you totally get that. I I just wanted to just say that. In some cases with certain clinics, when changing practices isn't an option, sometimes days of the week are good to look at. Sometimes a provider that may not be feeling really in line with the way that you're looking to go, just look at the schedule, ask about the days of the week. Most schedulers are happy to share that information with you because most families have a preference So if you're not able to leave a practice or there happens to be another provider in your practice, certainly asking. And if you can't change, then continuing the dialogue, just staying, you know, continuing the advocating and continuing talking to them. Yeah. And also last thing is sometimes nurse practitioners and PAs are some of the most competent providers I've seen in some situations. And so I think not being afraid of utilizing those paraprofessionals Usually if they're in a clinic like that, they're incredibly specialized and sometimes they just have more time often. And so I've, I've really had some great experience with those, the NPs and the PAs in clinic settings too. Yep. And if you can't change, Heidi and I have seen some physicians who have really dug in their heels and not wanted to budge on the approach that they think is best, whether that's staying on the tube until a child is much, much older and not worrying about it at all to sending them to a really strict behavioral program when the parents are clearly at odds with that approach. We've seen even some of those doctors with a slow and respectful approach really come around. So share that feedback, like Katya said, share that progress that you're seeing with them and keep the dialogue going. So Katya, I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit before we close about where people can find you and read some of your work because your books in particular are some of our favorite resources. (laughs) So would you share that? Yeah, absolutely. So our books, Helping Your Child with Extreme Picky Eating is anywhere books are sold. And then we did one for teens. And we actually have parents and eating disorder therapists and feeding therapists using it with tweens, so children as young as nine. So we have a book called Conquer Picky Eating for Teens and Adults. So if you've got that nine, 10-year-old, I still recommend reading Helping Your Child with Extreme Picky Eating and then maybe working through that workbook with a tween or a teen. We blog at extremepickyeating.com and we're on Facebook at Extreme Picky Eating and on Instagram. You guys just this week shared a great resource I know that would be helpful for people going into the doctor's office about progress and how you can measure progress through seeing a child relax. So my point being, your social media feed is a really great resource for families as well. So we recommend that people find you there and follow you. And the same with us. If you like what you heard today or you have any suggestions about what you'd like to hear more of on this podcast, visit us on Facebook and Instagram at Thrive with Spectrum Pediatrics. And we'll look forward to talking to you next week. Katja, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, guys. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tube to Table podcast. Every week, we're going to share our show notes at thrivewithspectrum.com. In the show notes, you can find a summary of what we discussed and links to all the resources that we mentioned. Also, you can visit us on social media and Instagram and Facebook. We can be found at Thrive with Spectrum. And on Twitter, you can find us at Thrive with SP. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us on social media and let us know if you have any input or any topics that you'd really like to see us address. We'll be back next week. 